I just think it's nicer being bouncing ideas off other people and working together with others. There is a lovely community of lovely wonder women that I'm tapping into, which is great. It's just hard. We're all busy. And so getting together more often is hard. But yeah, just having that sounding board and just being able to kind of discuss ideas. And yeah, it's really good. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. Hello, hello, everyone. So it's that time of the week again, and I am here with one of our beautiful Wonder Women renovators, Kathy Medell. Now, I'd say beautiful, and I mean it in the full sense of the word, like inside and out. I feel incredibly privileged to have women like Kathy in my community and be working with them to achieve amazing results. And so today, I think what I'm going to do first up is let Kathy introduce herself because she's had an interesting journey and I think nobody could tell that better than Kathy herself. But just to say she's a mum of two, she comes from a background in banking a long a while ago, but now she is inspiring renovator and investor. So welcome Kathy. Thank you Bernadette. Thank you very much. So would you like to start by just giving us a really, yes, a rundown of how you got to this point from being employed by a bank? Well, I guess banking changed a lot after the global financial crisis. So even though it was, I really enjoyed my career and it was fascinating, after the global financial crisis, it became a lot more vanilla and a lot more standardised, I guess. A lot more regulation came in and that sort of meant anything different that we were doing in the corporate space, lending space, was just streamlined and made a lot more manageable, I guess, from a regulatory perspective which meant that it was a lot less interesting from a work perspective. And I did stay in it for too long. That trappings of that income, you kind of, everyone wasn't enjoying it, but everyone's sort of saying to me, oh, but look at the income you're earning and just don't worry about it. And so I did stay there too long. And so when I got desperate to get out and I wanted to get into property, I started to, I joined a mentoring program and started to learn about property. But prior to that, I was kind of really desperate to get out of banking but I was too nervous to kind of step away and have no income, even though my husband was still earning, but I was kind of earning more. And so it was kind of losing that main income and how do I, but I needed time to work in property. So I thought, how do you kind of manage no income, but still then have the time. But so I wanted to get a balance of both. And so I decided to buy a small online furniture retailer because I thought, well, I could kind of do some interior design advice to customers and when they're planning their space and play around in the design space, but have the flexibility to sort of have time to go and manage property and whatever projects that I'm working on. Well, of course, that didn't work out that way. As any small business owner probably is aware, it's I probably worked longer hours in that small business than I ever did in the banking space. And I worked some long hours in the banking space. So it was a bit of an eye-opener and it just wasn't about design. It was all about being out there in the online world and getting the traffic through on your website and search engine optimization, which I really didn't enjoy. So yeah, it was all just too hard. It got really hard. Even before COVID hit, it was really hard. And then as soon as COVID hit, 
even, well, actually, no, I decided even before COVID that I just wasn't going to do this. This was not fun. So I ended up winding it down. Luckily, I, it was only online and I didn't actually hold stock. So it was easy enough to wind down. I didn't, wasn't stuck with a whole bunch of items. So that was a big learning curve for me in terms of what's involved in running a small business, but also going into something, going into, like in hindsight, I should never have gone into it. It was a totally different industry. I'd never even worked in retail in any sense because in the corporate space, you're dealing with one client and there's a lot at stake and there's a lot of time and effort put into that one client. When you're in the retail space, you've got to spread yourself thin. You can't provide, and I was still trying to provide the same level of service that I would have to a million dollar client as I was to a $50, your $100 item that was being sold. So it was just uh, hiding to nothing. It's a whole new skill set, isn't it? And I think there's a an idea out there that you set up an online business and people just come and buy stuff from you. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely not the case. No. I mean, I was competing against the likes of Temple and Webster. Like, so, yeah. But anyway, so no, that was a bit of a learning curve. But before that, while I was still in banking, I guess the property journey started a bit earlier when I did want to move away from... Well, actually, no, the first investment wasn't even about passive income. It was about negative gearing. Yeah. So we were both earning high incomes and you hear this negative gearing story and we thought, oh, yeah, we can reduce our tax. Let's just buy something. <laughs> at least I had the sense to buy something. It was the most we could afford. It was an off-the-plan apartment in the Central Park development in Broadway there in Sydney. And at least it was a good developer, Fraser's. I did do some research on them. And we bought on the ninth floor, so it was kind of still had an outlook. We weren't going to get built in. It was kind of, yeah, the most we could afford at the time. And lucky for us, like we leased it straight away. It was great. It was a new building. It was the in thing at the time. That was, I think, 2014, I think, we took possession. And then when I joined the mentoring group shortly after that, the first thing they said was never buy off the plan. <laughs> so I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm going to get rid of this investment pretty quickly. And it was just, I think the gods aligned, the universe aligned. I approached the tenants to let them know that we were looking at selling and if they were interested in potentially buying, and they did. They bought our asking price, no agents, just like that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, awesome. God, yeah. that. So, yeah, that was a really good outcome. That just was something that just worked really well, but it was more luck than good well, I don't know. Buying. I think that the fact that you put thought into buying the best property to buy, because I do know that a lot of those central park properties, there are a lot of smaller ones that really haven't done that well. Yeah. So they're lower in the building and so on. So I don't know. I think I'd give yourself a bit of credit for that. <laughs> well, yeah. But anyway, may, yeah. I'm glad we got rid of it back then and not had to wait till now. So yeah. I guess what I wanted to say is you may not have had the strategy right, but you still, I think, did okay in your buying. So that's great because so many of those stories have absolutely tragic endings. So well done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So what next? So then I listened to John Lindemann's reports and things. I looked at some of his and he was forecasting growth along the North Corridor heading up to Queensland. So I looked at what I could afford there. And we bought a little house, just a little three-bedroom standard kind of 80s built house in Tunkurry with the idea of flipping it at the time. But of course, being in Sydney then and that being up there, it was like mm, working full-time as well. How do I manage that? So we just rented it and thought, okay, well, when I get 
when I stop work, I can manage it and then do it, which ended up happening, but probably four years later. So yeah, we had that investment and that was kind of it for a little while. And then once I did step away from corporate life and buy that business and I started to think, okay, well, I've got flexibility with time, but not really the time. So it wasn't until I actually wound that up that I focused on that investment. It was almost neutral in cash flow. Like we did have to do some work, which sort of set us back a little bit, but it was almost cash flow neutral. But we just found the tenants that we were attracting to the property were just really hard on the property. I don't want to have to paint it every time someone moves or change the carpets or whatever. So that's when I thought, okay, well, maybe it's time to renovate it and sell it. And the market was just starting to take off. So this was late November. November. Yeah. We sold that. So it was really good timing. Had it renovated. Actually, no, sorry. I finished it. It settled early this year. I'm forgetting what, where we are. The years just fly. Yeah, no, no. In November, we decided to sell it. So I just did the renovation and sold it early this year for a really, well, net profit was 90000 after the costs and things. Yeah. So that was still great. It was good. When I look well, we, at, well, profit was more, but if I valued it at what it was valued at before yeah. the reno to after the reno, yeah. it was 90. So yeah. I would say that, that probably was the fact that life actually dealt you a good hand in that four years. I would imagine that it probably wasn't a great slip at the time. Would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. So we, well, I would have got my money back, but it wouldn't have been. No. Yeah, no. Yeah. But that's awesome. So, yeah, the universe has definitely had my back over the years with some of my choices. But I couldn't find the words. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so what next? And then COVID hit and working from home. My husband was working from home as well then. Our daughter did move to Newcastle, our daughter and granddaughter. And we thought, well, we don't have to be in Sydney anymore. So we decided to sell up our apartment that we had in Rushcutters Bay in Sydney and buy something up around the lower hunter but of course we couldn't find anything so we decided to rent and while we look for something and also I wanted to keep a foothold in the Sydney market so we bought a one bedroom in Potts Point as an investment Airbnb for some income but also somewhere for us to stay in Sydney and that needed a major reno that was advertised as a renovator's delight <laughs> so yeah that was a fun one in what year yeah. made for that 806 okay Beautiful. It's a large one bedroom, 64 square meters. So it's a decent one bedroom. It's got lovely city views. So yeah, it's a really good spot too. It's about a hundred meters from the Coke side. So really central location as well. So I think that'll do well. We haven't got that on Airbnb yet, but that'll probably be early around Christmas, early next year. We'll probably list that. I'm just thinking about that. Yeah. Yes. Well, you probably can circumvent the cap on Airbnb because Really, in Sydney, it's your PPOR, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That's good. Okay. Might have to look at that. No, um, don't do any, as always, the disclaimer, please get advice from your yeah professional. Yeah, yeah. I'll, but I'll look yeah. into it. Yeah, it's something worth looking into. into. Yeah. 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 We were looking for a regional property on small acreage around the Lower Hunter and just couldn't find anything that worked that ticked all the boxes. And then I came across this bread factory, (laughs) which was just too good an opportunity to pass up. And again, the universe had our back. On the day of the auction, it was bucketing down rain. (laughs) Local roads were flooded. 
people couldn't actually get to the auction. So it was just everything worked in our favour and we ended up getting it, which was great. So we paid six fifty for that. Beautiful. For our, a warehouse. So it's over two levels. It's 460, I think, square metres internal space. It's huge. So we're going to create a home for us upstairs. My sister's actually going to move in with us and live in one section. And downstairs will be an Airbnb. There's room for two, probably Airbnb apartments, but I'm worried that one of them is not going to have enough light. So I'll need to have a think about that. Or maybe it's just going to be better to do one really nice, luxurious kind of space that we can charge a premium for rather than trying to do two. So, But that's kind of phase two. Phase one is just getting us in there, getting it. And, you know, just discovering stuff, as you do with historic things. It's not listed, but it's got a conservation overlay over the whole area. And the windows are those thin steel-framed ones, which I discovered yesterday might have asbestos in them. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, it's all part of the fun. Absolutely. And so let's just unpack that. So really you have gravitated towards a passion project. So you've gone from like, and I think that's what's really great about having a repertoire of skills. You can enact your passion, but you can do it in a way that ticks a lot of your objectives. So interesting, like I often say that just about every woman that we work with has someone in their life that they want to help. So same with you. So you've got that's ticked off in this. It's your family home, but then it is also, it will provide you with an income. So killing three birds with one stone in a property that you pay six fifty four dollars is pretty amazing. I know. I know. Yeah. That's what I said to my husband. It's a no-brainer. We've really got to go with this one. It doesn't have the views that I was wanting, the country views, but I'll, I'll suffer that. <laughs> well, maybe that can be the next purchased once well, yeah, you exactly. established exactly. in the Hunter. And so, of course, it means that you need to relocate from, well, you have relocated from Sydney. How are you finding the sort of change in pace? Really good, actually, to be honest. Like there's still enough happening around Maitland and the Hunter that you've kind of, like you're close to the wineries, you're only half an hour really to Newcastle beaches and there's a lot going on in Newcastle as well. I'm finding there's a great... It's called the slow food movement in Maitland. And so there's a weekly, like a farmer's market sort of thing where all just the local growers and some are really small. They might only have one or two different vegetables and things that they sell and fairly small quantities. But there's one larger farm that sort of does a lot of the local supplies. And it's just lovely. Like you're sort of meeting people. The council's really proactive. They had a thing on recently called Future Maitland where they engaged with community and also a professional organisation to try and help them focus in on what Maitland can be really known for, how it can attract young people to move back home. And even talking to some of the locals, younger people, they're saying like they were born here and then went off to Sydney or wherever for work, but they're actually moving back. They're finding that there are enough opportunities here. I met a young guy who's making bionic arms, local guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks about 12 and I'm thinking, gosh, I must just be getting old because everyone looks so young. But yeah, this really entrepreneurial spirit. There's this rural community where young people are kind of utilising the cheaper rentals and leasing space for businesses and the lack of traffic and they've still got enough talent that they can tap into here. So yeah, they're doing interesting things. So yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, a lot of people ask me how I'm finding it. 
because I was always in a city as well in Sydney. Mm. I never liked the suburbs. I was always in a city. So it actually kind of makes sense that we've ended up in the inner city of Maitland. But <laughs> um, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, and you've got really got the best of both worlds because you've got an inner city property as well so yeah. that if you want to get your fix, you've got somewhere to stay and, yeah, that's yeah. probably a good strategy to have. Now, we're going to feature your the Bakehouse project at She Renovates Live, but I just want to ask you a few little things about it now just so our audience has an idea of what you're trying to achieve. So you've ticked off some of your goals. So what's your concept for the property? I think with the, just tapping into the history of it, being our bread factory and stuff, with the Airbnb, I want to create something that's kind of a destination on its own. So I want to give people that bakehouse kind of experience. And I've been researching some of the old Parisian bakeries. So the thing's going to be a bit more of that really luxurious chandeliers, mirrors, you know, kind of brass, just really kind of opulent sort of space, rich textures. So, yeah, just somewhere really special for people to feel comfortable in. And actually one of the councillors I was speaking to at that future Maitland event, when I mentioned I was looking at doing Airbnb downstairs, she said, oh, please, they don't have enough accommodation in Maitland, like nice accommodation to attract people, international people and, you know, people from Sydney and Melbourne and stuff. So she was really keen for us to set that up. So, Oh, so, yeah, that's awesome. Well, listen, I can't wait to learn more about it and I'm guessing you'll be developing the sort of the concept as you go. So in your feasibility, did you determine potential return on that part of the building? Not initially before we bought it, but since then, yes, <laughs> because I thought even if it's just our home, it still makes yeah. sense for us from yeah. an economic perspective. But, yeah, since then I've got onto AirDNA and, I mean, I think we can do a lot better than that, but on a standard based on a two-bedroom apartment in Maitland, we can be earning 30000 per annum. I think that was on 45% occupancy. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, I know that you probably do at least double that. Yeah. But yeah, I think we can. That's a good base to start with and I always think it's a good idea to be conservative initially so that any more is a bonus. And so given that you have ticked off a lot of boxes in this project or are ticking off a lot of boxes, oh, before we go on, how long do you anticipate project complete? Wow, that's a tough one. The builder's telling me a couple of months for phase one for us to be able to move in and then it'll be probably, by the time we totally finish, I reckon it'll be 12 months. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, but that's good. And the fact that it is also your family home, you're not under the same holding cost pressures that you would be. No, if it was no, exactly. Interested property. Yeah, yeah. Louise Shervington's chiming in, who's our other Airbnb queen, saying she thinks she can't wait to see it and she thinks it will be a destination experience. And I totally agree with you, Louise. Yeah. So, Amy, yeah, sorry, what we I was just going to say, the holding cost thing just reminded me of another project that I think I've maybe subconsciously have blocked out. But we, <laughs> while I was still working full time and I was keen to sort of build our capital and whatever, we did do a, a small development, a subdivision one into two up in Bangalore. So I bought a block of land. So I, I was looking for a little duplex or something to do 
that wasn't going to be such a demand on my time in terms of renovating. And I couldn't find anything in Sydney. And I came across this guy in the Property Investor magazine who was won all these awards for doing duplexes and stuff. And I wanted to get a sense of cost, likely cost for build for duplex. So I could kind of just do some high level due diligence. And anyway, I spoke to him and he gave me some ideas and that was that sort of thing. And I couldn't find anything. And six months or so later, he rang me and said, oh, okay, look, I'm not sure if you're interested, what state you're in. He said, but I've got a project up in Bangalore that I'm working on. There's six blocks that are being sold, that are being subdivided. And it's one of the buyers pulled out and they want to sell their block. And we've already got plans drawn up and it's in council and it's going to be six months, he said. Oh, yeah. Anyway, I did my due diligence on the area. Yep. It's forecast to grow. It's going to be great. I thought, yeah, okay, let's do this. Did some, I spoke to a couple of people that he'd done work for previously and they all said, yep, it was good to deal with, good communication. So, okay. Because I couldn't obviously manage it from that far away. So I let him manage it. Anyway, well, that was a lesson in development that is not for the faint-hearted. It was just sheer luck that we had enough to hold us through. So we had two builders go broke because they took on too many things, too many projects. So they overextended themselves. And the first one hadn't even started building. They just had our deposit. And I think they were actually, it was a little bit of, what's the word, phoenixing? Uh Because, yeah, the someone from the previous one moved to the next builder and so we didn't lose our deposit which was great so we thought okay anyway so the new builder took it on started building and it all started off fine and then it kind of slowed down but in the meantime I had left my job and even though we had pre-approval for finance for this of course when all the financing tightened when APRA brought in those rules about lending for investment and stuff yet that pre-approval fell away we ended up having to get commercial finance at 12% interest because that's all we could get because we kind of, we already, we had a mortgage on our place still. We only had the one income and this was kind of, anyway, so, and it was compounding interest so that we didn't have to pay interest each month. So it was just adding to the loan. So the loan was just getting bigger and bigger and the bill was delayed by 12 months. So our interest costs were $10,000 a month. I thought, oh my God. So we were starting to reach the limit of our loan. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, this was so stressful. And then they just disappeared. So we were at the final, there was only one more milestone payment. We were at the second last one we just paid and then they disappeared. And apparently with the insurance, with iCare, you can't claim from them until they've determined that the builder has gone broke. And so unless they register, they go into liquidation, they just don't want to do anything. So we, I got to know one email that the project manager sent kind of some months back, I noticed had other people on there, which I thought was really unprofessional at the time. Then I thought, oh, I'm going to search for this email. So all the other owners, we got together and got in touch. And so we all started agitating with iCare and with Fair Trading or whoever it is to declare them bankrupt because they just disappeared and stopped answering things. And so we got iCare on board, but then that was another whole process. So they get their panel of builders to quote on the work. And I tell you, I can see why iCare have in such debt and they're in such a mess because if the builders are on their panel, they basically don't check anything they quote on. So everything was wrong with these houses. They had to strip back the cladding, redo that again because the sarking wasn't the right type apparently. There were just all sorts of issues. So it cost almost more to finish them than it did for the whole thing. And anyway, but the builder, once they appointed the builder as well, 
he then discovered that, oh, no, there were more things that they hadn't quoted on. And he just submitted a quote to a price to IKEA and they just pay it. They didn't even do any checks. But they were charging us so $17,000 for skip bins across the two. So the first quote was 8000 and then there was another nine or whatever thousand in the next variation that they sent through. Scaffolding was the same. We were being charged double. And it's only because I put a spreadsheet together because I thought, no, this doesn't make sense. Wow. (laughs) How can all this be so much more? And I actually correlated all their different stages and quotes against the variation and stuff. But hang on, you've already charged us for this. Why is it here again? But no one at IKEA does that. So they've just got it to us. They know the system. But anyway... We eventually got them finished and the timing was right again where it was just taking off. So we sold one almost off the plan. There was a young couple, the agent had been looking for somewhere for who had to be out of their rental and they wanted to stay in the area and couldn't find anything. So they bought one before it was actually finished, but it was only a couple of months away from being finished. And then the second one we took to auction, there was another 130,000 more just in those two months between the other one and the auction one. But so we were lucky. We ended up making a profit, but gosh, it was stressful along the way because I just thought, well, what do we do? I was kind of thinking, my God, do I have to go back to a corporate job (laughs) to pay for the interest? So yeah, and after that, I kind of thought, no, I do not want to do development, even though everyone talks about it being the way to make a lot of money and whatever. And it is chunky. Yes, you can make chunks of money, but you've really got to have deep pockets to be able to weather the storm until you get that chunk. So I think going forward, I'll probably look at micro developments where you've got something existing and you can get income from that, add value, and then do something at the back. But you don't, it's not time critical all at once. You can kind of stage it when you have the money available to do something with it. So yeah, I agree. I think we've never had a development disaster, but I think with development, it is higher profit and the risks are higher as always. So yeah. And yes, builders are an interesting breed and they always say that you're placing, you're giving the builder a lot of control and you don't have a choice because that's what happens, but you really are at their mercy. But yeah. So, well, this is not how I was expecting today to, to go, but I think it's really interesting and it's really sort of a timely warning because it isn't for the faint hearted. In fact, Really, with property in general, like we did a project in Queensland, Wynnum, which was a splitter block, and from all intents and purposes, it was very straightforward. It was already a splitter block, just needed to have the boundary realigned. And I went up with Stephen to have a look at it. We'd already bought it. We bought it through a buyer's agent and all was well. And because he's in that area, like he's done he mainly builds hospitals, but on greenfield sites. So he's had that experience of all the issues around services. He said to me, I think that telecommunications, there was a tower and the footpath, you know how they have them. He said, I think that's too close to the driveway. And I said to him, well, no, well, you know, nobody said anything about it. But as it turned out, it absolutely was too close to the driveway and had potentially had the risk of really blowing out our budget, like twenty or 30000 yeah, wow. But it was just luck that we actually, it was an MBN one, we had actually got them to tell us in writing what we needed to do to put the driveway there. There was nowhere else we could have put the driveway. So if we couldn't have got it there, the deal was done. 
you yeah, know, yeah. and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You just put a trafficable lid on the pit, which was right next to it, and that'll cost you $300 and blah, blah, blah. And so at the end of the project, we got in touch with them and said, oh, we're finished. We're ready to have the trafficable lid. They invoiced us. We paid it. And then they then it hit the fan. And then they came back and they said, oh, my God, you can't have a driveway there. You know, who gave you the permission to do that? Well, council did and you okayed it because we had it all in writing. Yeah. And had we not had that, that could have gone absolutely the long, wrong way. So you just couldn't imagine that something so sort of minor in our eyes could be mm. such a deal breaker. So, yes, I yeah. agree with you. I'm just picking that. So Jane Isles Bennett says, you're braver than me. I'm too scared to do developments. Renault's for me all the way. Absolutely, yeah. Jane. Well, I think Kathy's decided maybe that too. Yep, definitely. And it's well, more fun. Like you don't have any as much say in developments like that. It's all kind of vanilla and, yeah, you get a choice of three coloured tiles and carpet and whatever. Yeah. 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 No, renovation's definitely more fun. It absolutely is. So I've just got to go back and check my little list of questions because I don't think I've asked any of them yet. (laughs) What's your goal moving forward from here? Well, look, I think between Potter Point and the Airbnb that we set up in Maitland, I think we'll probably, like, the passive income from that will be great from the two of them. It should be around 80 plus. Um, yeah. So I think the priority is going to be, I mean, I still want to build on that, but I'll, you know what I want to do ultimately? There's so much going to landfill, right? And those bland, boring 80s houses with the low ceilings that are really not attractive, that everyone just knocks down, I want to find a way to revive them make them appealing. So I haven't worked out how I'm going to do that yet, but I'm kind of trying to explore, can you get rid of the ceilings and do something that's still viable to do from a cost perspective, but to make them look a little bit nicer? Because there's plenty of those and they're cheap and they're ugly and they're ugly. But if I can make them nice, that's kind of what I'm trying to. Great. Well, brilliant. It's interesting. You obviously, you know, David. Yes. So and you know his Renault concept service. Yes. And is. he and I have had conversations about how the fact that it is very low priced. And I have said to him, like, in order for you to have a viable, like I've sort of been talking to him about the fact that it is very low priced and it will make it hard for him to grow. And he said, <laughs> he said to me, there are so many bad floor plans that renovators do themselves because they don't have a way of accessing good design services within their budget that yep. sort of more he feels this sort of moral need to make that available to them. I was like, oh, my gosh. So you're on a quest to rid the world of the ugly 80s houses. He's in, an, in a quest to rid the world of bad floor plans by renovators. I think we've got a little movement going on in our yeah. community. So, yes, it's quite yeah. funny. I'll stop raving on now. Tell me what your biggest triumph is, has been in your property journey. Probably selling that off the plan apartment so easily and for a really good profit. We made 300000 on that one. It was just so good. I don't know what made me think to approach the tenants, but because, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, I just thought, well, it's worth asking. If they don't, well, at least I'm letting them know that it's going to be sold and we'll need to bother them. But it worked for them and, yeah, oh, that was just brilliant. That was, yeah, that was really good. 
Awesome. So yeah, doing what you do best, which is around working with people. And I think that's something that a lot of women don't give themselves enough credit for, having good people skills. It's not that men don't, but I think that, yeah, I think that you can take credit for leveraging on those skills to get a really good outcome. So congratulations. Yeah, you've done well. Thank you. Despite the furly detours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a couple, but yeah, no, it's all worked out. Awesome. I'm trusting the universe a lot more these days. <laughs> sure yeah. Work it out. Brilliant. And so you're enjoying life where you're not going to a job or you're not running a business, you're just working on your projects? Yeah, I am. I mean, I do feel I want to collaborate with others more. I yeah. find it's a little bit, even though I'm quite okay with making decisions on my own, I just think it's nicer being bouncing ideas off other people and working together with others. Yeah. So there is a lovely community here in the Hunter that we've of lovely Wonder Women that I'm tapping into, which is great. It's just hard. We're all busy. And so getting together more often is hard. But yeah, just having that sounding board and just being able to kind of discuss ideas and yeah, it's really good. Really good. So I look forward to actually working with someone probably on a project at some point. I think that'll be good. Yeah. Awesome. Yes, and of course, joint ventures bring their own little challenges. So you do need to have good people skills and a high level of emotional intelligence to make that a pleasant experience. So, but I'm sure you're up to that challenge. But also, I think with joint ventures, yeah, I almost there's another story and a lesson. I did almost join a joint venture with three other people in for a small development in Melbourne. And one guy was an accountant and a couple of others, one was a doctor and the other one project manager. And so there were kind of skills. We had like yeah. complementary skills and stuff and the accountant was going to be doing the feasibility and all that sort of stuff. And so we looked at two sites and one of them, we hadn't signed anything formal, thankfully, but we just nutted out how it was going to work and what our objective was. And so we, there were two sites we were considering and then we decided one of them wasn't really the location wasn't as good and it wasn't worthwhile pursuing. But the first one was actually going to auction first. And so we decided our limit and we decided the strategy we were going to do. And then literally two days before the auction, the guy who was going to attend the auction on our behalf said, oh, look, if we miss out on this one, we'll go to for the other one. Okay. We actually agreed that we weren't going to pursue the other one. And that just kind of gave me big alarm bells and lucky Really, I pulled out of it then. I said, no, that's not. Because if I can't trust what we agree, then how can we proceed on something such a a big commitment? And I was glad I did that because later on, and this is where you have to trust your instincts too, I think. Um, Later on when I ran into them, I was chatting to them about what they're up to and stuff. And they were talking to me about, I don't know if they actually ended up with that one, but another feasibility. And I was looking at the numbers and I'm like, oh, there doesn't seem to be any holding costs in that feasibility. It's like, oh, well, no, because everyone has different cost base. And I'm like, but you still have to make some assumptions when you're doing the numbers. You can't just presume there's none when you're presenting a profit figure. So, yeah, I think it was just you need to be careful definitely who you work with and have that total transparency. And you can't give someone total, what's the word? You have to really know what you're getting into as well. You have to have an understanding of the numbers. And I think my corporate background has helped with that. But I think anyone that hasn't had that, you really do need to understand what you're getting involved in, especially in a development. It's just so many, like you say, the risks are so much higher and one thing can yeah, really send it in the wrong direction. Well, well, thank you, Kathy. I think 
I'm really looking forward to seeing the full plan of the bakehouse at She Renovates Live. I just want to let you know we really love having you in our community. You're just a little breath of fresh air. And I also want to say that is the most tortuous success story I have ever heard. <laughs> I'm happy to see that you have come out of all those battles unscathed and are now on a path to true fulfilment with renovating. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's been an interesting journey, but look, you know, life is challenges, isn't it? Problem solving and absolutely. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. Beautiful. Thanks. Thanks, guys. If you want to meet up with a group of savvy renovating, I shouldn't say it's all women because it's not, but savvy renovators, I'll say, come over and join She Renovates. It's completely free Facebook group and it is growing at the rate of knots. We hit a thousand members just recently and now it seems to have picked up momentum. And so they are all savvy renovating women and men that are working their little hearts out to live a better life through renovating. Join if you're not already a member and then ask, comment and do whatever you would like to do in order to further your renovation journey. And that's it for me today. So I'll see you next week. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com. 